So I had a look on Amazon recently. I searched for self-help. I searched for religion, all the products that Amazon might have. Um, under self-help, there's 100,000 products to choose from. Under religion, there's 200,000 products to choose from. It seems basically everyone out there has a plan for your life as long as you're willing to buy what they sell. I mean, how would you even begin, even if you had the money to buy them all, how would you even begin to sort out, okay, what's right, what's wrong, how are we going to figure this out? There are all these kinds of messages out there. Which ones are scams? Well, I wanted to find some of the best, worst examples, and there were lots of them. It was really fun to look at how horrible these examples were. But here's just one. Uh, winning the lotto stroke lottery for everyday players. This was under self-help. Uh, written by Professor Jones. There is no name, first name anyway, which doesn't really add to the credibility of what he's probably trying to sell. Uh, from its own description, it says, this is the book 150 million people would love to read. So people haven't actually read it, but apparently lots of people would like to. Um, doesn't seem very credible. Now, if this book was true, surely there would be more than one review. Surely that one review would be more than three stars if, it was, if this actually worked. Well, let's read that review, right? Okay. So from User Fashionista, titled Bit of a Flop, content or review did not inspire me in all very uninspiring lowercase letters. I feel like that should be like the proper response when we're around something we're completely let down, did not inspire me. Well, everyone has a plan for the good life, right? But does any actually deliver? There's all these promises out there, but who's actually going to come through with these promises? What Micah talks about, and what I believe we also know from experience, is there are many plans out there that either don't deliver or are flat out harmful to us. Because they use us up and they can lead us astray. I mean, for 10 pounds, you could buy Professor Jones' book, and you will have been used up and led astray for those 10 pounds, I'm sure. But in the more important areas of life, being used up and led astray can cost us more than 10 pounds. And what Micah does here in this kind of scathing chapter, uh, chapter three, is he brings to our attention how sin uses us up and leads us astray. So last week we talked a lot more, um, we focused more on oppression and, and, uh, and everything that might come with that more in this world and the realities of oppression and stuff and chains in this world. This uh, week we're going to focus a little bit more on what spiritual oppression is like. I mean, Micah is talking about both simultaneously, um, but we can't talk about everything all the time. So the focus for this sermon and be a bit more in the spiritual realm of things. And here's where we're going. We're going to talk, the first little section of Micah, he talks about evil feeders. The second section, he talks about false leaders. And towards the end, uh, we hear of how God sets the world right. So we're going to go through some details because Micah, as it's written, a prophetic book in the Old Testament can be a bit hard to understand. So we're going to get our heads down into the text for a bit and then also bring it up when we actually talk about how this can apply to our life. So let's first start with the evil feeders, the first four verses here. In these first four verses, Micah addresses those who, instead of shepherding God's sheep, were eating them. They were consuming them. They weren't good. They were evil, feeding on God's people. And through Micah, God is directing his message to the leaders and the rulers of God's people. So these are the people who are in charge of, of caring for others. And as we've heard before in the stuff we've already looked at in Micah, they aren't embracing justice. That's the first problem that God has here. These leaders are not embracing justice. He says that they, uh, in verse 2, they hate good and they love evil. They can't stand the smell of good. It makes them sick to their stomach. 
If you know how Christina reacts to mayonnaise, it's that kind of thing. She can't even look at it. It causes her stomach to turn. And that's how the, the leaders are, these evil leaders are, when it comes to something good. And they love evil. They love evil the way a father loves a son. They love evil the way a husband loves a wife. They just they love it. They embrace it. That's how they feel towards evil. But then the image gets really gruesome. It's like an intense episode of The Walking Dead. It's some kind of grimy, whatever the newest grimy horror film might be. These are what the people in charge of Others Good are actually doing. First, the skin is torn from their bodies. That's pretty gross. Then, the flesh is torn from the bones. The bones are picked clean. That's pretty gross. And then all that's left of these oppressed people are bones. And what do they do with the bones? Well, they break them and they put them in this pot that they continue to eat for themselves. They grind their bones and they add it to the rest of the meat. They make a complete meal out of these people. This isn't done to people who have died or people who have been killed. This is done to people while they're alive. And these are the rulers, these are the leaders that we have who should be shepherds for the sheep, but they're acting like wolves. Actually, they're worse than wolves. They're cannibals because they're eating their own. Should have been loving carers, but instead they're evil feeders. And God's people are being eaten alive and there's nothing left. So what is God doing about this? Well, in verse four, uh, we hear that when these people, if, if they stay on their greedy path, when these people cry out to God because of the sufferings and stuff that they're going to expect, God is going to turn his face away from them. Just as these evil people have, have turned their face away from good, God will turn his face away from them. They become repulsive to God. So uh, what does this mean for us? Because obviously it's just, we have a different context here um, than what Mike is talking about. But I think one thing we can learn definitely is that sin is a vampire. It's vampiric. It eats us alive. It steals our life force. And we let it in. We ask for it. We want it to eat us. Now, following any other way than the way of Jesus means we leave open our necks, we leave open our wrists, and we're asking to be drained of ourselves. Maybe a good example is something like this. So we, if you feel lonely, so you feel lonely, so you search for a partner, and that's fine and good. That's what people do. That's great. But it's when we put a good thing above everything else where it, comes, it becomes a bad thing. And in our want to be relieved of loneliness, a partner becomes more important than following God. And then we miss out on living a full life with God because we're focusing more and more and more around the lives of what we think is our partner, but it's really more and more around ourselves to be relieved of loneliness. Now, this is a really socially acceptable way to live. It's kind of how everybody does life. And it doesn't look bad on the outside. You, you can live like this and be fine. But here's where it doesn't work. Finding a partner is not a cure to loneliness. Because you find a partner, you still feel lonely. You get married, you still feel lonely. It's unfair to your partner to put all your needs for loneliness onto them. So it's not only good, bad for you, it's also bad for your partner. And the more that we put that need of being known, the need can really, that need that can only be met by God, the more we end up starving ourselves. And we might be eating and eating and eating, but we're really spiritually starved, craving for something more. So it's ironic. And searching for the cure for loneliness outside of God, we end up more lonely. That's how sin is a vampire. It's an evil feeder. The idea of a partner completing us completely is an evil feeder. It's like a vampire. We'll take and take and demand more and more. And we will give and give and give, thinking, oh, maybe I just need to give more and give more to this. But we end up uh, more decrepit inside. And when we stay in that state long enough, we don't call it a tragedy. We call it normal. This is how st sin strips away our skin, strips away the flesh off our bones, how it breaks our bones and how it crushes us. And eventually, if we stay on that path, we will be entirely consumed. But the day is coming when all that eats us alive will be under God's justice. 
I mean, God here is holding a gun to the heads of these rulers, to these leaders, to us, really, a sword to our hearts, not to kill us, but to awaken us to life. He wants us all to change. He wants us all to realign our lives with him. He wants these leaders and these rulers to realign their lives with him so that he doesn't have to bring this disaster. uh, Basically, God is saying, if you continue in this way, this is not for your good, and I'm going to eventually make everything right. And when suffering will come, and it will, the worst thing that can happen isn't that suffering will come. The worst thing that can happen is for God to be absent when suffering comes. So that's evil feeders. Let's leave on to the next uh, few verses. The false leaders. God directs his message to the prophets of the day. And instead of uh, leading people in God's path, these are the prophets, these are the people who are supposed to know everything about God. Instead of leading them down God's path, they're intentionally leading people down other paths for their own self-serving needs. They're prophets devoted to themselves, not devoted to God. And these false leaders are, are staggering away. The idea of leading people astray is like basically being drunk and kind of like you literally can't even walk a straight line yourself. And if you have other people following you, then they're all stumbling as well. They lack the moral and spiritual sobriety that leaders ought to have. And as they clamp down their teeth on their food, they give out a message of peace as long as you have food to give them. If, you, if they don't get what they want, they declare war. So for those who give them what they offer... They give a message of prosperity. If you just give me more time, whatever, I'm going to give you the freedom. I'm going to give you that message that you really want to hear. I'll give you health. You'll flourish. So these false leaders aren't just accepting bribes. They're demanding bribes. They're flat out demanding them. Now, if if someone isn't able to give them what they want or refuses to give them something, it's the opposite. They're going to withhold that message of freedom, withhold that message of, of peace and flourishing. So off the bat, we see how easy it is in this situation that these false leaders can't be embraced by the poor. If, if you are struggling to feed yourself, how are you going to struggle to, to give stuff to somebody else? And if you don't have money to appease these leaders, you don't get peace. You get damned. But these prophets, they're also promising something that they can't deliver. Because what, what they're saying here, this idea of proclaiming peace, that word for peace is much larger word than how we use it today. It's, uh, generally, we use peace as in like uh, peacetime and wartime, like there's no war, like an absence of war, or the idea of peace and quiet, especially if you have a very exuberant four-year-old. Peace and quiet does sound amazing. Um, but the biblical idea of peace goes even further than that. It's complete human flourishing in all its ways. So it's more than just the absence of war, more than just uh, like a restful, peaceful respite. It's uh, when everything in your life is completely flourishing in all ways. And this is what these prophets are promising. Now, these false leaders, they're not going to bring peace. God is saying judgment's coming, destruction's coming on themselves and anyone else who follows them. So they're promising something that they can't deliver on, but they also require others to sacrifice them in order to get that false message. So these liars are manipulating others to give to them for a reward that the people are never going to see. And if people don't give to them, then they go after them and steal from them anyway. So what kind of hope would you have if if these are your leaders as people here? It, It seems hopeless. And if these false leaders couldn't get any worse, we read that God is, uh, will stop their divination, which is at the end of verse or the middle of verse six. Um, basically, what that's, what that's saying is um, these prophets are worshiping or saying that they're worshiping God, the God, but are going about it in the same ways all the other outside nations would go about it. Basically, um, whatever it might mean to worship all the other outside lesser gods, that's exactly what they're doing. 
So it's a method people would use to other worship other idols, like witchcraft or sorcery or child sacrifice or all these other kind of things. So other nations around them would use all these alternative, alternative methods to seek the gods, and that's exactly now what God's people are doing. So they're starved for the sacred, and they're finding all these different ways are, 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 are to, to kind of get to that, that sacredness. So more than just having a bad message, these prophets who really should know better, they also use bad methods. They're trying to get God's blessing for themselves, not only from bad motives, but also from bad methods. So across the board, they're just not very good. They're bad. Wrong theology leads to wrong practice. And as we've seen this already, Micah's time isn't all that different from ours. Like technology might be better and we might live in better houses and now we have you know, pubs where we can deliver beer directly into a glass and you know, our lives have gotten better. But we still have the same kind of spiritual problems, the same kind of spiritual issues that humans have always had. And sure, there are sure, I'm sure there are people who practice witchcraft today, but probably not all of us practice witchcraft who are here in front of us. Um, but all of us do use bad methods to try and get what we think we ought to have. Wrong theology leads to a wrong practice. So the very first thing an idol does, the very first thing some other god does is lie, just as we've been reading here. This isn't new. It works on us every single time. It's literally the oldest trick in the book. It's what went on in Genesis 3 in the garden with the very first sin that, um, that happened to humans. Here, here's J- J- the, game, the, the, game, the playbook for, for idols. One, all idols lie. The second is all idols require sacrifice. And the third is we're left with less. All idols have a wrong message out there. And then all of them require some kind of sacrifice from us, like a wrong kind of method. And then the outcome is we're left with less. This, isn't, this is how it works and how it's, how it's always worked. The, the, the idea of all idols lying is there's a wrong message, the idea that God's holding out on you. He loves you, but maybe not as much as you really deserve, maybe not as much as he really should. It's FOMO, your fear of missing out of God's love. This happened in the garden, the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect, and humans could like walk around naked with God, and it was like this weird kind of hippie commune on crack kind of thing. That, like, the... Like, the best situation humans have ever seen, we still felt like we were missing out. We still think, oh, maybe God is holding out on me, so I must do something in order to change that. And so then what, is, what, what happens next? Well, it requires a sacrifice. That means I do what I need to do to get what I want, because God's not going to deliver it. I can't trust him anymore. So the humans ate the fruit. They wanted to be God. This meant they sacrificed the relationships between each other. They sacrificed the peace they experienced in the garden. And ironically, it meant they sacrificed the very things they were seeking. Adam and Eve are now at each other. They feel shame. Their relationship with God is now broken. They're not getting what they really want. And what's the outcome for Adam and Eve? It wasn't happy. They got chucked out of the garden. They're left with less, away from God's presence. They didn't get peace. They didn't get more of what they thought they wanted. They got less. They brought war upon themselves. They aren't flourishing. They get frustration. They get struggle. They get labor. Labor. Now, listening to the wrong message led them to the wrong method, and they're left with less. This is common. Advertisers know this really well, and they exploit this all the time. Basically, every single advertisement can be this message, method, outcome kind of thing. Um, if you're not familiar with the most interesting man in the world from Dos Equis, I will tell you about him. No, there he is. Uh, this is a, kind of a popular commercial in America. I think it's probably been around here a little bit. There's a, at least a couple of people who knew the, what this guy was. Basically, this is who every young man wants to be. This guy parachutes out of planes. He's like the best at sport. He always win, If there's an award, he'll always win it. Um, he always has women around him, apparently, here. The actor who plays the most interesting man, he says, this is every guy's fantasy. 
And to quote one of the commercials, if he were to pat you on your back, he would list it on your resume. He's a cool dude. That's what we want to be. It's the image of what young men want to be. And they deliberately picked an older guy so that young men wouldn't be intimidated by some, or see him as a threat or as a reminder of accomplishments they haven't achieved yet. So this is like, beer commercials know what they're doing. They're spending loads of money on advertisements. They're going to do it right. They're tapping into something here. And the lie with this is you are only as good as your accomplishments. Or you can just be like this guy if you drink you know, Dos Equis, drink this beer. The sacrifice is anything that doesn't make your list of what's impressive, like you know, the hard, long work of being a good father or a good husband or committing to anything long-term, that's off the list because that's not going to you know, make me look cool. You treat people as objects, like women just become objects because their only worth is to make you look good. And the outcome is a lonely life. Now, this is a dumb example. For sure, it's a dumb example. But if beer companies know this formula and they're exploiting it for you to buy beer, what about those who have more power and are more insidious who know that formula and exploit you in other ways? Because this simple formula applied to bigger things really can be devastating. We have a million messages beamed into our eyeballs, rammed into our eardrums, and they're, they're with us when we wake up, they're with us when we go to sleep, they're with us when we walk around in the outside world. But then that's just outside of us. Within us, there are also a million other things going in our hearts. We have all these unmet desires. We have all these hurts, all these pains, dreams, uh, things we get excited about. Is everything lined up with God's way? No, of course it's not. And then there's the very real existence of dark spiritual forces that are at work. The world, our own hearts, and, and the spiritual forces against us are all wanting to take us out all offering so many different messages that aren't for our good. And if we just kind of skate through life, we're easily going to be catching on to some of these. And so for us, wrong theology leads to wrong practice. It's a wrong theology that God is holding out on me. God really doesn't care about me. He can't do anything for me. He isn't really bothered. So we try and find our own way. But then we're all tired. We're all anxious. We're all sad. We're all lonely. And this is also, by the way, how you can live impossibly busy lives and still feel like you're not doing enough because you bought into something else. The God of success is going to eat you alive. The God of prosperity will strip the meat off your bones. The God of sex will, will break what's left and consume you completely. You'll be asked to sacrifice your children, to sacrifice meaning in the name of comfort, to give everything, and you will gladly do it. But these gods are never for you. They're always for themselves, always conforming to the ways of the world. They're not like God at all. And you'll be left as an empty shell if you're left with anything at all. Now, God sees these lesser things that we call gods. He sees how they eat us alive, how they lead us astray, as we've been reading in Micah. A justice has been despised. All that's right has been distorted. And God doesn't just sit by and let this happen. He is bringing his justice to bear, making the wrong things right. Or to steal a line from Tolkien, everything sad is going to come untrue. And that means he's coming to stop these evil feeders. He's coming to stop these false leaders who are crushing his people. Instead of them crushing others, they will be crushed as God sets the world right. So that's what we're going to look at here in this last section. How God sets the world right. So all these things are not right. That's what God is saying. You're doing this. This is wrong. I'm going to come. I'm going to change things. And there's a time coming where God will set all things right. Look at verse 12 with me here. God says, because of you, because of all these wrong things you're doing, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. So Zion, 
if you're not familiar with like geography and stuff like that, Zion is the holy mountain that stands for God's holy presence. And that's plowed like a field. It's brought down, uninhabited. Now, Jerusalem is the holy city built on the holy mountain, built on Zion. And that's going to be reduced to rubble. The temple, which is in Jerusalem, which is on Mount Zion, the temple is the holiest of all places. And even as you further in, as you get into the temple, it gets holier and holier and holier. The place where God dwells, the, place, the, the, the symbol of God's presence in the entire world, that's going to become an unnamed mound of dirt. Everything the evil feeders built, all that they stood for, all the false leaders were working towards the end, will end up destroyed, empty, nameless, completely forgotten. And maybe a bit of... Uh, background here to, to bring to a point kind of what Mike is trying to talk about here. In the Old Testament, uh, God use, uh, uses space to talk about his holiness because it's about where God, the symbol of where God's presence was. Certain places were more holy than others because it was more of a symbol of God's presence. So the more that God is present, the more holy the place becomes. And there were degrees of, of holiness. So the most unholy places in the Old Testament were outside of Israel. Jerusalem, where God lived, was more holy because that's where God is. The highest part of the city was Mount Zion that was even more holier. Then at the top of the mountain was the temple. So the very top of the top was the temple and that was the holiest place. And even in the temple, there are degrees of holiness of, of where God's presence is, right up to the Holy of Holies where uh, God's presence was most intense. And it was so intense that only one priest could go in there one time a year. And if that happened otherwise, people would just die, which is pretty crazy. It doesn't happen here. If you come up and steal the microphone, you won't die. So when God says he's going to destroy Zion, that he's going to destroy Jerusalem, that he's going to destroy the temple, this is more than just like a national concern for Israel. This is God saying, I'm going to wipe myself out. I'm going to remove myself. My presence will be no longer with you. That's the thing that set Israel apart from the other nations. God was present there. He says, this is not going to happen. I'm done. Can he even do this? Is this even allowed in God's, in God's rules? Well, everything that the evil feeders built, all that the false leaders were working towards, ends up destroyed, nameless, empty, and forgotten. And Micah is treating Jerusalem, the city, as like a religious unit, like Jerusalem itself as a religious unit. The city was impressive, but it was built on bloodshed. It was built on corruption. It was built on oppression. What if we were to do that today? Like, what are the Jerusalems of today? If we were to treat cities like religious units, what are cities that stand for something? What are, what are the Zions of today? Your Londons, your New Yorks, your Silicon Valleys. I mean, these cities have their own religion that the rest of us look towards. I mean, we may not pray towards Mecca, but we know like, how much we direct our attention to what they're beaming into our, into our phones, into our heads. Consumerism, attention, this is all act, acts of worship. And we are devout consumerists. What would happen if we view Manchester as a religious unit? Or if we were to narrow that down to our own neighborhood, how, how would it fare? I mean, there are great parts, there are fantastic parts. I mean, the other day, Christina was asked if she could live anywhere in the world, and she said Manchester. I would totally agree. England. Okay. Yes, <laughs> it, Manchester. It, it's conditioned. Okay. Thanks for ruining my idea. Fair enough. What country would you live in? England, of all places. People are like, why would you live here? I mean, we, it, uh, we had to fight a lot in order to live here, and we feel like it's worth it because we love being able to live here. It wasn't easy to do so. But we also know that as impressive as Manchester is, as great as Trilton is, we also know it has its own brokenness. 
We're living in the middle of a housing boom and a housing crisis. Skyscrapers are going up and while people are held down. Now, I know economies and market forces and all those things are complex and there aren't simple answers, but to maybe put it simply, is this how we want our city to be? Who's gonna change it? Who will stand against the evil feeders and the false leaders of our time? Might seem impossible, because people who are in charge of building skyscrapers have a lot more power, a lot more money than we do. And let me add more maybe on top of this impossibility. If you think the housing issue is tough, just, it's just the tip of the iceberg, because why is there a housing problem at all? It's because there's a heart problem with all of us. How in the world are we to do anything? We're powerless under the evil feeders and the false leaders, let alone those tendencies inside of each one of us. Think for a moment maybe about what might have been the ancient world's biggest superpower, Rome. They owned all of that, which is a lot of stuff. They were big. There was nothing like it. It was vast. If you lived during Roman times, there'd be nothing. How could you conceive of undoing any of the, the horrible practices that, practices that you might have had? It was wealthy. It was powerful. At its height, nobody could have imagined anything more powerful than the Roman Empire. And when that vast government is set against you, as it was for the early Christians of Jesus' day, it surely it must have felt more overwhelming than for us. I mean, how is a small group of people who follow Jesus and his way going to compete with the power and the might of Rome? And yet, where is Rome today? It's in ruins. To the people of the early church, it would have been inconceivable to think that Rome would cease to exist. The powerful Rome who ran the world as far as they, would con they were concerned would end up in a heap. Rome, the once powerful nation that made sport out of killing Christians, that their entertainment was based on the blood of martyrs, is now merely a crumbling tourist attraction that for a tenor you can see. And in our city, Roman ruins haven't even remained. We don't even have the ruins. You have the place where the ruins used to be. The whole grand vision of our gods. Secularism, the kingdom without the king. The beautiful ending of consumerism in front of us. The glory that awaits all of us who only live for themselves. There it is. Micah is speaking to people who, just like in our day, are faced with powerful world structures. The West, consumerism, complacency, apathy. Why would we put hope into something that's going to end up like this? And yet, we do. We need someone more powerful than a city, more powerful than a human system, more powerful than the world to rescue us from being eaten alive, to rescue us from being led down the wrong paths. And in verse 8, we get a glimpse into this, where Micah is speaking to Israel. He says, but as for me, this is Micah the prophet saying to the, these evil people and these evil structures, as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. But these words are spoken to us, not by the voice of a prophet long since dead, but by a redeemer who is very much alive. And Jesus is telling us today, as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and with might. All your problems, bring them to me. All your guilt and your shame, bring them to me. All your brokenness, bring them to me. No longer will you be held under the power of evil feeders, stealing your life, eating you alive. No longer will you be held under the thumb of false leaders, leading you down the wrong paths for your own benefit. I will crush them. They will be destroyed. Not even their bones will remain. They're going to be dust. And Christ was full of power when he went to the cross. He took on everything that isn't right in order to crush them. 
and he was crushed for it. So all the wrong that we have done are doing and will do. That's what Christ took care of. And Christ is full of power when he rose again. He didn't just take our sins upon him. He gives us a new life. That means we can resist the evil feeders. We can resist feeding on others. We can actually follow Jesus the way that he tells us to. And Christ will always be full of power because even now in this moment, he's in charge of this world. We need to hear this because it's hard to see. It's hard for me to see often. We need to hear that Jesus has ascended. He's on the throne even now saying, I am making all things new with a power beyond what we can imagine. Unlike the other gods of this world, Jesus doesn't seek to destroy us. He was destroyed so that we won't be. A power that's working for our good at his expense. And he's not out there. Because if you follow Jesus, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's come closer than our own heartbeat. And so through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we see that uh, the Holy Spirit in us is life-giving instead of life-stealing. He's not feeding on us. He's feeding us. That should be reassuring. That's for each one of us. We don't have to wonder where we stand with him because it's not on us to impress him. He's not keeping score. And because this is God's very presence, there are no degrees of holiness anymore. God's presence is, is always in us, always with us, so all of life is holy now. And the Holy Spirit also is empowering. Instead of leading us down the wrong path to do us harm, the Spirit empowers us to live in the way of Jesus, and that's for our best. So the life of following Jesus isn't about becoming stronger in your own power. It's learning how to trust more and therefore how to surrender more of your own power to him. Because it's not easy. Is it ever easy to follow Jesus? It's not. It's difficult. But Jesus went through the worst so that we can experience the best. So when we come to the table here, when we sing songs together, we get to protest this world's broken order because Jesus has crushed it all. Death itself has been crushed under the power of Jesus. And the bread is a symbol of Christ's body. So was our old way of life, broken. We also get to sing about the hope that the Holy Spirit has in us. It's life-giving, it's empowering, and all through God's grace. Jesus has done it all. And he's given us his spirit so we don't have to do life in our own power. We get to surrender to his. And that's what this wine gets to symbolize. The wine represents Christ's blood. It's a symbol of the new life that we get through him. If you follow Jesus, he invites you to his table. This isn't Redeemer's table. This is Jesus' table. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer to participate and celebrate with us. If you don't follow Jesus yet, don't feel obligated to participate because we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe in. But if you haven't done this before, know that anyone can get in on this. This is open for anyone who wants to experience a new way of doing life. And eating and drinking is a great first step. Um, in a moment, Michael's going to come up and we'll sing three songs. And as we sing together, take a bit of the bread and dip it in the juice or the wine and um, eat as you're up here. Because there are evil feeders who will use us up. There are going to be false leaders who are going to lead us astray. But Jesus rescues us from both and gives us not only the hope for a new life, but actual new life itself. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, there was someone who comes to our rescue because we know there are so many other messages that promise your goodness that will never come through, and yet we fall for them often. Lord, as people who are constantly realigning our lives with you through, through the power of your spirit, through your grace, Lord, we ask that you don't give up on us. You continue to work on us. 
And we can ask that knowing that is a, a promise that you've given to us. You'll never give up on us. As we uh, cont- continue to come, come to you each week, each uh, week by week and day by day, Lord, we pray that we'd be uh, built stronger to be able to resist those other messages better, to be able to understand what it means to have our life fully found in you more than it is now. And Lord, that we would be able to not only live that life for ourselves, but to be a blessing for others in those ways as well. We pray in your name. Amen.